You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. What you're about to hear is a recording of SpyCast that was taped at the museum in front of a live studio audience. For this podcast, we'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Join the movement. Uh, Let me introduce who we have here today. John Nixon was a senior leadership analyst with the CIA from 98 to 2011. He did several tours in Iraq and was recognized by a number of federal agencies for his contribution to the war effort. During his time with CIA, he regularly wrote for and briefed the most senior levels of U.S. government, which we'll talk about today. He also taught leadership analysis to the new generation of analysts coming into the CIA at the Sherman Kent School, which is the agency's in-house analytic training center. And since leaving the agency in 2011, he has worked as an international risk consultant in Abu Dhabi, UAE. Uh, So this is probably a little cooler than it has been uh, over in the Middle East. It's nice this time of year, but uh, oh well. And he's the author of the new book, Debriefing the President, The Interrogation of Saddam Hussein. And if you don't hear the subtitle, you might think we're talking about a different president. We'll get into that today. But we'd like to thank you, John, for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. Um, And we're going to start with a pronouncement, which will allow us to avoid having to say this over and over again throughout the program. Saddam Hussein did some very, very bad things, both to his neighbors and to his own people. Nothing we say should in any way be misconstrued to suggest that we think he was a good guy. we just don't want to have to caveat every other statement yes. by saying, he's a bad guy, but. Uh, so now that we have that other way. The, the internet can do that for us. Right, the internet can do that for us. Uh, we were actually scheduled to have you come to this a little bit earlier uh, because your book was actually scheduled to come out earlier. Yes. And what happened is something that many ex-agency people uh, will certainly understand. You ran into the Publication Review Board hell. Yes. Uh, and the book is redacted, which I think was interesting because a lot of people have books that are chopped up by the PRB, but yours actually left those redactions in place. Yes. You talk a little bit about that process. Of, was it frustrating? Was it something that uh, you thought what was redacted was unnecessary? How many days do we have to discuss this topic? <laughs> um, one of the most frustrating aspects of writing this book, or the most frustrating, was uh, the Publication Review Board of the CIA. Uh, I understand the need for there to be a process by which the manuscript is looked at to make sure that classified information or information that could be very damaging to uh, people's safety and what have you. Uh, I understand there's a need to have professionals look that over. 
and I get that. But the agency itself, um, I think, takes way too long to, to do this, number one. Number two, it, uh, it doesn't really trust the process. Um, the agency, one of the things about the agency is they talk a good game about change and embracing change and being part of the change. But really, when it comes down to it, they're, they're afraid of change. And they've never really ever signed on to the fact that people write books. And uh, I think one of the reasons for that is that if people write books when they leave the agency, uh, then this agency can no longer control the message. And it can no longer control the flow of information. And they feel threatened by that. And uh, I find that very disturbing. Um, it, on the one hand, there are some people who get out, and I'm sorry, I don't mean no, to go off on this, this but you started it, so. I know, yeah. <laughs> um, there are some people at the higher ends of the agency who, are, who the agency feels can be trusted to watch out for its equities and spread a very positive message. But when it comes down to people like me uh, and some of my friends and people I know who are still going through this process with the PRB, we're kind of viewed as traitors and we're kind of viewed as people who are unnecessarily upsetting the apple cart. And I have a very, so you can see why I have a very jaundiced uh, view of this. A colleague of, an ex-colleague of mine and I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about this process a few weeks ago. And uh, she's going through, I think it's been since October 2015, she, her book has been in manuscript limbo. And despite the fact that in her book that they have, uh, she has you know, zillions of footnotes, uh, they're still holding back even the stuff that's out there in the, in the public, public realm. Uh, in my case, the publisher decided to, use, to keep the redactions in um, because I, I think if you read the text closely, you can kind of get a, an idea of what's being redacted. So it helps. And I also, I, I can't help but say this, I think sometimes publishers like to put in the redactions or leave them in because once people see that they're not allowed to see something, all, yeah. automatically they want to they know it and they want to buy it. You know? So that might also have been their, their, their purpose. But most importantly, I think it, they wanted to give a, a flavor for what was, right. had been taken out. Let me, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you is that you were a leadership analyst. And I think yes. that's something that's, even people who know analysis, understand what agencies do, may not understand this very well. And, and, and I'm wondering if you could lay it out for us. And, and as part of that question, can you talk a little bit about what got you into leadership analysis in the first place? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, leadership analysts are born, not made, okay? Um, and uh, no, I always had a great love of reading, and I always had a great love of biography. Uh, and reading biographies. And when I was originally being recruited by the agency in my first interview, they started asking me about, you know, asking me about leaders. Tell us about a leader that you, you think you understand or who are the important leaders in, you know, this region of the world. And so I started giving out answers and they liked the answers. And that's kind of how I sort of gravitated towards this. Now, once I got into the agency, uh, I faced a almost completely different hurdle. Um, there used to be a, an office called the Office of Leadership Analysis at the CIA. And that existed when I was hired, when I was given my conditional offer of employment in 1997. But by the time I came, board, came on board in February of 1998, the Office of Leadership Analysis had been dissolved and all of the leadership analysts had been put into the country teams. 
And so, and, and the way you write in the book is they had no idea what to do with you. Oh, the, 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 when when you ask that question, what do leadership analysts do? That, that, those were my managers <laughs> who said that, and uh, it was it was horrible. Um, leadership analysis is something that is, again, the CIA can be very encrusted with its own uh, traditions, and some one of its traditions is in the analytic realm is to sort of look at leadership analysis and say, huh. I don't get it. Like, what do you guys do? And the, thing, the problem with that is, is that when a crisis erupts and policymakers want to know, have questions, the first question that they ask is, what does so-and-so want? Who is so-and-so? What are they after? And so it's kind of an arrogance and a conceit on the part of particularly CIA managers. I'm sorry, these, I'm getting, these are my jaundiced opinions, so, but, but it's... <laughs> 13 years of tough experience. Um, so leadership analysis, though, is, is really, if, if it's done well, it, it can be a thing of beauty, I think, um, where you take all, sorts of in, all, all sources of information and you create a sort of composite sketch of who this person is. And what you're really trying to convey to a policymaker is, most of all, what makes this person tick? What are, what are the things that they want? What are the, how, how did they get to where they are? What are the, things that, what are the experiences that shape them? And, and how, does this, how does this translate into their actions? Uh, it, it delves pretty close to the, to the uh, realm of psychobiography, but you have to kind of, it's a very fine line you have to walk because I found that in using psychology or psychiatry or psychology to explain leaders, um, sometimes that you can go overboard and you can uh, almost justify anything uh, if you want to. And it's better to use the sort of evidence that you have at hand uh, to be able to uh, mark out your claims. Now, I, I think it's, it's most of the work we do are done in these profiles of leaders, and they're usually about two both sides of a page. And they're amazingly popular. They're like the most requested documents uh, the agency puts out. Um, but we also used to do paper, longer papers. And again, these things were always a big hit downtown. And that's why I never could understand why we were always treated like second-class citizens. Well, a lot of it's about decision-making, right? I mean, it's ideas, what is going to make this person make this decision? Like, what kind of person are they? Are they going to yes. choose to do X, Y, and Z? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's like the number one question that people have when they're thinking about foreign countries. If you look at today, Kim Jong-un or Putin or anyone, it's, yeah. it's can we understand the person? Yes. And did you, do you think you left leadership analysis in a good shape when you left CIA? I know it's been five years, but you taught it yeah. at the Kent School. You taught the next generation. Is it something that you see today as being respected perhaps more than it was when you were at CIA? I think it's the same as it always was. What's a talking head song? Same as it always was. Right, right? Yeah. Um, the... Uh, I think that there is still a hunger downtown or you know, in Washington, D.C., among policymakers for this information. And there, it will never abate. Uh, there will always be this, this earnest desire to know about their counterparts elsewhere. But one of the things that really bothered me when I left the agency was how long it was taking to get things out the door. And also a lot of the kind of restrictions that were placed on what it is we were saying and also certain managerial decisions about, oh, well, no, you can't say that. 
for the worst conceit I used to find was when I would write something and a manager would say to me, oh, the president, president doesn't need to know that. And I'm like, oh, you're such good friends with the president? Oh, okay, great. Um, and the thing is, you don't know what the president needs to know. And it, it's some of the things that the president wants to know, you, you just can't divide. So it's better to sort of trust, I think, you know, a very good analyst if you have one. And usually you can tell if someone's done their homework or not and, uh, and who, has, who has crafted a good product and, you, and has put together something that has tried to answer all of the anticipated questions. Let me ask you about good products. That's a really interesting segue. So a bit about background that you get from the book is you're originally on the Iraq desk, but you'd switched over to Iran around yeah. 2001. But you volunteered to go to Iraq once we were there to help special forces, CIA, do leadership analysis, do, did tracking high-value targets. And what you found was interesting to me is that you had written a lot of these memos on these high-value targets in Iraq before you had left the Iraq desk. And when you got to Iraq, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. That You found that the people had just kind of updated your previous memos, put them out as their own, but they were really yours. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. wasn't a lot that had been done to kind of continue the work you had done back that in the was, 1990s. Yeah, that was, that was shocking. And you know something, that was, I, I think there was so much stress, play, well, there was so much work to be done that I think, in fairness, I will say a lot of managers maybe, were not maybe checking as well as they should be. And certain analysts, one of the things that was most damaging, I thought, in terms of analysis was because it took so long to get things out the door, once you had established an analytic line that had been blessed by the seventh floor of the agency, people would often go back when they would have to write another memo about, say, Saddam moving north or Saddam moving south, they would go back to some of that established language and take it from there so that they wouldn't have to go, jump through those hurdles again. And once you start doing that, you really stop thinking about the issues. And that's not how you do, you do, do leadership analysis that way. You talk about the fact that you, you lived and breathed Saddam Hussein. You, yes. You, like when movies were boring, you thought about Saddam. When you were sitting in bed, you thought about Saddam. This was... That's kind of, is that what's necessary to be good at this? I mean, I know you did it, but in your all, opinion? All analysts, all good analysts have the obsessive in them, you know? And that's, that's what you have to be kind of obsessive. And I mean, not in a weird, you know, kind of look at that guy on the bus way, you know? But, um, uh, but you have to be someone who just continuously keeps digging and digging and one, always willing to go down the rabbit hole. And, uh, and that's kind of what the way I was. You would just, it was very, I hate to use this term, but it was very enjoyable working on Saddam when I was at the agency because um, he was such a fascinating figure and his family was so, the interactions between his family and his extended family and his colleagues, um, I mean, it was so dysfunctional and, and so bizarre at times that it's like you couldn't wait to get into work the next day and, and find out, okay, what's happened today? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was, um, I, I was on Morning Joe the other day and uh, about two weeks ago when I, the book came out and I mentioned to Mike Barnacle, I said, you know, uh, an analyst friend of mine said that it was like the Simpsons with guns. And, uh, <laughs> and Barnacle laughed and he starts writing it down. And then and during the interview, he was like, you got you to gotta bring, bring that up again. You know? So um, it's kind of what it was like, the Simpsons with guns. Well, and when you were in Iraq, 
Saddam, obviously, for those who don't know the history, hopefully we're all on the same page. He went into hiding. Yeah. And, you know, you were looking for other high-value targets, but obviously Saddam was the prize of all of them. Yes. And you talk about Elvis sightings. Yeah. Was there too much information coming in about Saddam Hussein uh, to really figure out what was right and what was wrong? Uh, in a sense, yes, because particularly on the issue of trying to find out where he was, you had to you had to sort of run down as many of these as you possibly could because if, first of all, the pressure on Baghdad Station in the autumn of 2003 to find Saddam Hussein was so intense. It was one of the most intense projects I've ever worked on. And basically the message from Washington was, look, we, we let Osama bin Laden escape uh, uh, Afghanistan. And we can't. And now we're at war in Iraq, and we can't let the same thing happen to Saddam Hussein. Not to mention the president's own personal interest in in getting him. So, uh, you know, we would get all of these reports, and it, there didn't seem to be any sort of quality control in terms of trying to sort of vet them. Anything that said Saddam was here or Saddam was there, we had to try to run down as best we could, and we spent a lot of time. And we, you know, we uncovered a lot of dry holes, and we uncovered a lot of bizarre, arcane stories that went nowhere. And uh, but eventually, uh, little by little, um, we got onto a series of raids. I, by the middle of November of 2003, I really didn't think we were going to find him. Um, and uh, you know, the special forces of the U.S. military, U.S. Army, were getting a little closer by the end of November. And by the first day of December, it seemed pretty clear that they were, oh, they were onto something. And uh, I know that uh, my, some of my colleagues uh, uh, who are here today uh, remember this time. And it was once they had sort of found the chain of bodyguards that, or the facilitators that we had always been advocating for in terms of focusing on these people, um, that's, when the, that's when the strings started to get pulled. And, and he's obviously caught. Uh, and when he was, you were asked to ID him. And, and yes. So what were the telltales? What were the kind of things that you knew Saddam Hussein had or distinguishing marks that you were able to look at? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, having been a leadership analyst on, on Saddam, uh, you watch a lot of videotape because people are always asking about his health. That's another really big issue with policymakers. You know, is this guy dying? Does he have cancer? Does he have herpes? Does he have venereal disease? I mean, and, and if we were to believe everything in the press about Saddam, he had every disease known to mankind. <laughs> um, but you're always watching videotape, and you're just trying to sort of, and working with the doctors uh, at CIA to sort of see if there's anything that comes out of the videotape. And you're always looking at pictures as well. So I looked at my fair share over the years. And uh, I was looking for tribal markings. Uh, I was looking for a wound in his leg that he'd suffered in an assassination attempt in 1959. And I also was looking for this sort of droopy lip that he had, you know, which was from a, a lifetime of smoking cigars. And, and to be honest with you, I mean, and, I did, and I had a series of questions. I had about 30 or 40 questions that I was asked to pull together in about 40 minutes to that I felt that only Saddam, my best friend, uh, would know. Um, however, when I did get to eventually, when we got taken out to the airport, that's who was being held in this, this facility near uh, Baghdad International Airport, and I was taken out there about midnight, and you know, it was just 
pitch black, and we're driving on Airport Road, which is was not a safe road to be on at night. And uh, you know, the, the drivers have the night vision goggles on, and we don't have the lights on, and it's they're going at about 100 miles an hour, and it's it's like something out of a spy movie. Um, and we get there, and then we sit and wait until the military is done checking him out and asking questions. And then all of a sudden, they're like someone pokes their head in and says, "Okay." You guys, it's your turn. So we walked down this hallway, and it was sort of like being backstage at a rock concert, but instead of like groupies, it was military guys, you know, and in fatigues. And everybody's just coming and going, lots of activity. And we're standing there, and then all of a sudden the door opens, and he's just sitting there on a, on a, on a chair, on a, a folding metal chair. And he's just, you know, so, sort of like he comes here every Saturday night and, uh, <laughs> and sort of holding court, you know, and, and we were his guests that night. And I, one of the things that originally struck me, for, first of all, if I, can use, mm -hmm. if I can use my own language in the year, I mean, the whole thing, I looked at it, and I went, <gasps> I, just, I just involuntarily took this breath in, and I thought, holy shit, it's, it really is, it's Saddam. Because something in the back of my head kept on saying, no, it's, they, they got the wrong guy, they got the wrong guy. And the minute I saw him, the second I laid eyes on him, I knew it was him. He, it, there are some things, he was sitting t three feet away from me, and there are just some things that are just so clear. It's, it's incontrovertible. Yeah. And one of the things you dismiss in this book that, I, that was kind of contemporary wisdom, at least, was that there were body doubles all over the place. It still is contemporary yeah. wisdom. Um, people to this day still ask me about the body doubles. And it's perhaps one of the most persistent myths of Saddam and also one of the most persistent questions. And it's, there's a weird dynamic to it. The more you deny it, the more people believe it's true. And... Uh, I don't know how many times we told policymakers that there were no body doubles, but there were no body doubles. I think it got started by Saddam used to have a lot of bodyguards, and many of whom were from his tribe, and many of the, many of them bore a similar res, uh, resemblance to him in terms of they had dark hair and a dark mustache, and uh, and then people I think maybe to some somewhere along the line people started developing this rumor that he had people, well, I shouldn't say that. There were also some books written by people who claimed to have been Saddam, al surgically altered by, by Iraqi doctors to look like Saddam, to protect him. And to be quite honest with you, I think, I think Saddam also helped propagate this myth because it made him seem more elusive and, and more mysterious. Uh, but, um, you know, I even asked him about it, and he just kind of, he just kind of laughed, threw his head back and laughed, and then he said some words to the effect of, well, how do you know I'm not the body double and the real Saddam is out there running around <laughs> free? And then he just said, no, no, there's only one Saddam Hussein. So, <laughs> so let, let, let's be, not beat around the bush. Let's do the bottom line up front here. All right. You talked to Saddam Hussein for weeks. What was the most surprising thing about Saddam Hussein? I mean, you, you'd spent years researching him, trying to understand who yeah. he was, what made him tick. What, was, what drew you in and said, wow, I didn't think Saddam was like this? A couple of things. Um, first off was uh, Saddam had really become disengaged from running Iraq, we found, near the end of his regime. Um, the last few years, he more and more had sort of retreated into his own sort of interests and, and private passions of being with people that he liked to spend time with and also working on his writing and, and writing, a novel, writing novels. Um, Saddam was one of the worst writers and poets you'll ever, I mean, even if, you were, even if you were trying to write bad poetry, 
you couldn't equal him. Um, and I've been, I went through a lot of it. Uh, the, uh, but he, but the thing is, he really had disengaged from running the government on a day-to-day -day basis. There were things that he still felt were his responsibility, such as regime security and, 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 and his own personal security, that he attended to. But he had delegated a lot of the matters, a lot of, a lot of high government matters, to a circle of very close and trusted aides, people like Tarek Aziz, the former foreign minister, Izad Ibrahim, the vice chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council, and uh, Taha Yassin Ramadan, who was a vice president, if I remember correctly. But the thing is, that really shook me because at CIA, we had, we had generally looked at Saddam as this sort of master manipulator and the guy who was constantly pulling the strings and trying to outmaneuver us and outfox us and think two, three, four steps ahead of us and come up with ways to sort of frustrate us and none of that, none of that was real, none of that was true. And you know, this is, a, this is a, a trap that analysts sometimes can fall into when you start thinking that the person that you've become kind of obsessed with and, and are, are following so closely is 10 feet tall and can do all these things and, and then you realize they're just a human being and they've got shortcomings themselves and they're, you know, they're, they're not Superman. And some of that plays into the WMD question, I would think. Yes. Yeah, can yes. you explain a little bit how, I mean, his day-to-day -day not being involved means that he doesn't necessarily have the knowledge or the operational power to deal with the specifics of the WMD. You know, we found that a lot of people in his science programs and in the ministries that were, had been previously concerned with development of w, WMD were really just sort of telling him, you know, we want to continue our research and, you know, therefore we need to have our budget raised 10%. And Saddam would say, yeah, sure, you know, yeah, fine. You know, that's good. That's good that you do that. But they, they had no, there was no program. And what they were doing was just justifying their budget. And he was just sort of rubber stamping their requests and it was just, you know, it was really about research, and it wasn't an active weapons program. And when we, I was a believer in WMD, as was everybody that I knew and everybody I worked with, not only in the U.S. government, but in every allied government that we ever had meetings with and talked to about WMD, I never heard anybody ever say, what if he doesn't have them? I never heard anybody question that he, that he, he wasn't working on these programs, like uh, he wasn't working towards a nuclear bomb, or that uh, you know, he, he wouldn't use these things if he, if he had them. And, uh, that, and one of the problems with Saddam was he was so secretive and so suspicious all the time that when you talked to him and asked him questions, he would always answer your questions with questions of his own. And then maybe he'd give you a frank answer but the thing is, you, you just, his manner was such that you just didn't believe anything he said. And you would have to go, really go back and check the record as best you could. And one of the things that happened when I came back to headquarters and I had an opportunity to go through the records, but also talk to some of my other colleagues who had been involved in the debriefing after I had left, and we came to the conclusion that he was largely telling the truth. And, you know, it was, uh, it was a humbling experience and uh, shocking for, for us. Um, and, you know, there's another story that I tell in the book about um, Halabja. Halabja was the use of uh, chemical weapons on the Kurds in 1988. 
And it was done as sort of a punitive action against Kurds who had allied themselves with Iran. And uh, it was in, Halabja was in territory held by the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, the PUK. And uh, you know, Saddam, one of the justifications for the war was he had used weapons of mass destruction on his own people. He had, used, he had gassed the Kurds. And one of the things we found out was that, and I didn't believe him when he told me this at first, but then I found out he was telling the truth. Saddam didn't give the order. And it was, I had a very, very contentious discussion with him about this. He was, it was the most angry I saw him get the entire time. He looked like he wanted to kill me. And it, not, oh, I want to kill you in a nice way. I mean, kill me like he really wanted to get up and throttle me. And he was just, and it's a scary, it was a scary moment. An angered Saddam was like looking at a wild animal uh, that wants to just rip your throat out. And uh, we went back and forth, back and forth, and then eventually um, I, I, I found out that he was telling me the truth and that the decision to use chemical weapons in Halabja was, done on, was made on the battlefield and that Saddam found out afterwards, like the rest of the world found out afterwards, and actually that Saddam was very upset by this, not necessarily because of the loss of life, but because it had happened in Iranian territory and he believed that the Iranians would try to uh, exploit this for their own purposes with the international media. We'll talk to John Nixon more in a second, but first let me tell you about Movement Watches. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries all around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. And the story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2003, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this. Stay in school, kids. But tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crowd-funded fashion brand in 2013. And through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media amassing 1.5 million followers. And by 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous, both men and women's watches. And I've told you this before, but when I went out on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Because movement watches start at just $95. At a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for this quality of watch. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. We're talking classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 500,000 watches in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. Look, the watch I have is a really gorgeous design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, wow, where did that come from? So now is the time for you to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. So there's a part of this book that really stood out to me and, 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 uh, and made a lot of sense the way it was written. I was deployed to Bosnia in the late 1990s, and we were involved with uh, a group called the Drina Wolves, who were some of the most 
horrible people on earth. They had done a lot of genocide and ethnic cleansing and raping and pillaging their way through the Muslims during the war, but these were guys who were my age, they told good jokes, they liked the same sports I did, and it was very difficult to kind of remember that they were not good people. And some of the stuff you used to write about Saddam Hussein, I'm wondering if that same thing you had to remind yourself of that, his, his sense of humor, the, the emotion about his daughters, his favorite book being The Old Man in the Sea, the fact that he looked to George Washington and de Gaulle as kind of the heroes that he wore. Did you have to stop and say, this is Saddam Hussein, yeah. not somebody that I want to respect and admire? Initially, I was a little bowled over by him, to be honest, because he was one of the most charismatic individuals. And I've, I, I now have trolls on the internet commenting about things that I say, you know, which is, I, I guess, a, a sign that I've arrived yeah. in, in the 21st <laughs> century. But, um, and I, I don't mean to say this as I, I liked him. I, he was a thoroughly unlikable person. Believe me, I, I spent a couple of weeks with him. By the time I got done, I remember my last day with him, I, I woke up and I said to myself, Oh God, I got to talk to this guy again. Oh, this is this is just brutal, you know. Um, but the first few times that I spoke with Saddam, uh, he was incredibly charming, uh, polite, self-deprecating, humorous. Uh, I mean, a real treat to interact with. And I remember thinking, like, maybe this guy had like the worst press agent in the history of the world. <laughs> but uh, Baghdad Bob wasn't yeah, particularly yeah, good well, at his job. <laughs> He would have been a great car salesman. Yeah, but, sure. um, but, uh, but as you got to know him, and as we moved forward in the process, process of debriefing him, you know, the other side of Saddam emerged, which was somebody who could be incredibly arrogant and nasty and vicious and rude and condescending and vicious and, and a little scary. He, um, he uh, whenever, you know, he would do things just to kind of set you off and... Um, one of these things, whenever he wanted to show his dis dislike, he, he, there was a certain rhythm to our questions and a certain way he would act. He'd sort of sit there and he'd be like, he'd look at you while you're getting ready to ask a question and he'd just be like, and then he'd start picking his, be like, he'd try to be figuring out where you're, where you're going with, your, with what you're saying and what question you're going to ask. Then it would become clear and he'd be like, and then he'd listen some more, and then he'd get a question that he didn't like, and then he'd, be, he'd just be like, and he'd be listening to your question, and you know, like what was in his fingers was more important than your question. And then when you got really, when you asked him something that really bothered him, then he'd be like, <laughs> he'd be looking at you. Like, and then when you, when you got done with his hands, he'd kind of work on his toes for a little bit. <laughs> And then when that got, when they ran out of that, then it'd be like, especially this was after lunch, um, he'd just start going like, and he'd start cleaning his teeth. And he'd start pulling whatever was stuck in between his teeth and staring at it and, and just sort of ignoring your questions or, you know, waiting for you to, and it was just, it was, you had to sort of keep your, there were times when I wanted to laugh, but I couldn't. And there were times when I really wanted to scream at him, but you had to keep your composure and you just, had to realize that you know he's playing a game here, and you know you got to just sort of be very straightforward. Um, he, again, an unlikable person, but I learned more about him 
and I learned, I, one of the things that I took away from this experience was that we had largely built up this caricature of him and that there were a lot of things that had happened Saddam, to Saddam that had created, uh, that had kind of compelled him towards some of the actions that, and I, I still couldn't condone some of the things that he did, but it was more understandable why he did them. And that was a, that was a huge thing. It was a huge threshold for me to cross. Um, and it really shaped the rest of my career at the agency in trying to figure out some of these leaders. And I was a lot more careful in the future because I realized that we can't, when we're looking at these leaders, we don't have to sympathize with them. That, that's not necessary. Um, and, and sometimes it's bad. But it is important sometimes to empathize, to try to sort of put yourself in their shoes and see things from their side of, side of things, see, see, the, see the way they see the world. And then some of the actions become more understandable. And with, with Saddam, um, for example, invading Kuwait, it, sound, it sounds crazy. It sounds like a crazy thing to do. But you know, one of the things we learned, we, we learned just how he, what he was dealing with in 1988 and 89 and into 1990, in which you know, his country was, he had, he had this huge standing army uh, with nothing to do, which I think con concerned him a great deal. Um, standing armies with nothing to do in Iraq, especially in Baghdad, uh, often find something to do uh, at the behest of certain <laughs> officers. And that's the way Iraq leadership transitions happen in Iraq. Um, he had debts. He had was 70, 80 billion dollars in debt. Um, he had gone to the Kuwaitis and to the Emiratis and to some of the other Gulfies, uh, Gulf Arab nations, and said, "Listen, I, 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 can't, I can't rebuild my country if you don't, if you don't forgive these debts. Because, and I was bleeding for you, and I was protecting you from the Persian horde. And he really did believe that he was protecting the Arab nation uh, from from Iran, uh, and to a certain degree, he was right. And uh, and they just arrogantly said, well." We're not going to forgive the debt, but pay us back when you can. And so they had kept him in this sort of limbo where his, his anger started. And an aroused anger at Saddam is a bad thing. Um, and he began to get very, very uh, upset about this. And then one of the other things we found out was, you know, usually when a country goes to war, there's a lot of preparation. And there's a lot of uh, generation of intelligence products, like papers and studies, and what might happen if, if option A is pursued, what might happen if option B is pursued. Um, and there's a lot of briefings that go on and a lot of meetings of the, nation, of the country's national security establishment. And in this instance, none of that happened. And Saddam just one day, two weeks before, it, before he invaded, told the Revolutionary Command Council, the highest governing body in the country, you know, I think it's time. I think we've got to teach these guys a lesson. And, uh, that's, what I'm gonna, that's my plan of action. And of course, they all said, oh, of course, yes, yes, Mr. President. That's, that's a great idea. And, uh, and yet, we, had, we kind of always looked at the, 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 the invasion of Kuwait in a, in a, very, in a more jaundiced way. It's sort of like a, just a, a stupid move that he had made. And while it was stupid, there were these things that were happening that I don't think we, we took enough time to understand. And certainly, if we had, then maybe maybe 
Ambassador Glaspie or the State Department in general might have been better uh, situated to help Saddam address some of these questions. And maybe we could have headed some, th some of that off. I know from Saddam's perspective, the, the only time I ever saw him even remotely acknowledge a mistake was when we talked about Kuwait. So I, I, this book itself is worth reading for the conversation you had with Saddam Hussein. But I think what's really interesting near the end of this book is something that we don't see all that often in books written about intelligence. And that's dealing specifically with that third and final part of the intelligence cycle. And that's dissemination of policymakers. Because you twice briefed in the Oval Office the president and his staff at the time. Yes. And of course, you, briefed, you dealt with a lot of people on the seventh floor of the agency with the executive floor. And you actually go through in this book kind of the preparations that take place to work your way up to that kind of briefing, everything from murder boards and everything else. And it's really interesting, the narrative, uh, especially from the seventh floor, of not necessarily trusting the analysts to give an adequate portrayal of what was on the ground. I, I, without... You could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but can you give a little bit days, days, <laughs> days a little bit of the idea of everything from the what I found laugh out loud stupid was their uh, the obsession with what you wore when you <laughs> when you when you talked to Saddam Hussein to uh, the lack of knowledge or at least the ideological bent of those at the very top of the administration that we consider to be the smart ones yeah. within the Bush administration. Scary. Um. You know, at the agency, um, I think they thought this, okay, he's now in our hands, and we have to go in there and tell him. I think the seventh floor, this is the, was the viewpoint of the seventh floor. We have to go in there and tell him, we're the big bad CIA, and you're our prisoner, and now you have to tell us, you know, everything. And, that, and, and stand over him and glare at him, and that Saddam will just crack. You know, and uh, that was ridiculous. That wasn't going to happen. And I don't think they understood what went into a, a, a debriefing or a, a process of, of trying to discover everything. There was a lot of attention placed on basically find out WMD, find out where, where he hid it. As though, like, never does he have WMD. It was where did he hide it? And that also presupposes certain facts that weren't there. And strangely enough, I remember when we came back from Iraq, and when I came back in January of 2004, and then when some of the others came back after me, you know, I, I, I really got the feeling that we were treated as failures because we didn't deliver, we didn't deliver the goods. And so many people's careers were riding on this. And... You know, you can't deliver what, it, it's sort of like you didn't pull the rabbit out of the hat. And I wanted to say, kind of say, well, the hat was defective and there was no rabbit, you know. Um, and, and it was really kind of a bizarre feeling. And again, it, it, I think it reflected the, on the agency's part some, some of the really profound ignorance of where we were, what we were doing, and, and what we hoped to accomplish because I don't think that really the Bush administration even, I mean, I think the Bush administration's real hope for an accomplishment was getting rid of Saddam. In a sense, WMD is almost irrelevant to 
uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. It's really getting rid of Saddam. That is the thing that really the Bush administration wants to do more than all, more than anything. And if somebody had come across the day before Operation Iraqi Freedom started uh, and said, oh, we have incontrovertible evidence that he does not have these weapons programs, the Bush administration, in my opinion, would have found another reason to go in there. Um, now, dealing, dealing with the Bush administration was really interesting in the sense that um, they wanted to know, they finally came around five years after the war started and asked what happened during the debriefing. And that was largely because of uh, a 60 Minutes interview with the FBI special agent who succeeded us in terms of debriefing Saddam. And many of the claims that the FBI made in this uh, 60 Minutes interview were, um, were false uh, and were done mostly to sort of puff up the, uh, the FBI has a very profound, and I know a lot of people at the FBI and, and I like them, but I, I, one of the things about the FBI, they have a profound, profoundly successful PR department and it's something that they're very good at. And this was, they, they, they basically kind of exploited this in 2008 because it, there was a lot of, there was a lot of emphasis on, uh, on the treatment of detainees and torture, and the FBI was trying to make a play to take over something called the Joint Debriefing Center, which I'm never even sure if that ever even got off the ground, but anyway, they, they, they won, and they were able to use this to kind of get their way. Um, but to get to the Bush administration, um, my interactions with them were that were pretty shocking. And, um, you know, it's one of the things I get in, in the book is, is that, you know, a lot of times the agency will tell the president, you know, will, it tries to do what the president wants it to do and tries to give the president what he, he, what he wants to know. Um, the CIA is one of many intelligence agencies, and they're all vying for the president's ear, and they're all vying for the, a, a bigger slice of the budget every year. And it is natural for the intelligence agency to want to do the work that the president asks it to do. We, we, we serve the president, and that is important, and that is what we do. But there comes a point when you've got to kind of stop, because it's a very fine line between serving the president and then giving the president what he wants and what he wants to hear and just pleasing him. Um, I had an incident where I kind of, I was brought into the Oval Office and then all of a sudden the president wanted to know about a certain issue and we had this, I actually had an argument with the president of the United States in the Oval Office with the entire evil empire present. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was the most uh, surreal experience of my government career. But the thing is, I held true to my guns, and I kind of said, you know, I, I said, listen, this is what I think, and I'm not telling you because I, I, you know, I'm not telling you this because I don't like you or whatever. I just, this is what I think, and he wouldn't listen to it. And I, at that point, I realized, this man has learned nothing from his experience with Saddam, you know, because we were now talking about something about Muqtada al-Sadr, who had kind of replaced Saddam in the pecking order of public enemy number one, and I, I, I was just, I was just floored by this. And then when I got back to agency headquarters to tell them how the briefing went, uh, I remember I kind of explained to them that, you know, we had kind of, 
a heated discussion, and then the briefer said, yeah, it was this and that, and everybody kind of just like was just, oh my God. You know, and everybody sort of broke out into a cold sweat. I was like, and nobody said, that's what you're supposed to be doing. This is, this is, this is your job. You know, you, you, have to give them, you have to give them the facts, and you have to give them your best take, and you can't be looking to please them. And, that's, and it's really a hard thing because when you go into the Oval Office and you talk to the President of the United States, you realize that this person has a very, very difficult job and you kind of want to give him good news. And you, and you have to fight that urge as best you can. I mean, if you have good news to give, that's one thing. But you can't manufacture it just to, just to make sure he's happy. And that's kind of what the agency, I remember feeling that's what the agency was looking for from me. And that really bothered me. And that's one of the reasons why, that's when I started thinking like, okay, I think I'm done with this. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it was, a, it was, they were great experiences and I'm glad I had them. But, you know, I kind of shudder to think what it's going to be like in, what it's been like for, for agency analysts under Obama and certainly what it's gonna be like for agency analysts under Trump. I have about 50 more questions I could ask you, but I'm going to open it up to the audience okay. to give them an opportunity. There are microphones moving around. We want to make sure we pick this up. Uh, so if you'll wait, there it is. A wonderful presentation. My question is, what was in it for Saddam Hussein to talk to you? That's a good question. Um, Saddam liked to talk. Um, and he loved to talk about himself. And he, the first week, he, he, he was just sat in his cell. And he even said to one of his guards at one point, or no, to the interpreter, he said, uh, he said, how come nobody's coming to talk to me? I don't understand this. And he, one of the things is Washington really got caught by surprise that he had been, that he had survived because they somehow believed that he was going to go down in a hail of glory uh, when we had already told him that that was probably not going to happen. Um, I think Saddam had several reasons for wanting to talk. Number one, it would fill up his days. Number two, uh, by talking to us, he could figure out what it is we were interested in and what it is we knew and what it is we would try to get out of him, which is a certain sense of power and leverage for him when he was going to be coming into a trial. Which would, at the time, there was, no real, there was no real governing entity in Iraq other than the Coalition Provisional Authority. Um, but we all knew that somehow this was going to be moved into, at some point in the f future, uh, an adjudicated process. Uh, and number three, he could trot out his answers and see if any of these stuck and how, how we might take them. And I think that those were all things that appealed to him. Up here, Lucy. Hi, thank you for the talk. Uh, you know, for an incoming Trump administration that has disparaged um, you know, the intelligence of the agency, I guess what would you say would be the value added or the unique intelligence that would be contained in leadership profiles that the administration couldn't get from reading The Economist or speaking to academic experts? Um, that's a very good question. Um, the, for first off, um, Donald Trump, for all of his many successes in life, um, does not have a very extensive background in foreign policy and national security making. And I think at the very least, he could benefit from a lot of the expertise that agency analysts have and possess and can share with him. Um, 
his disparagement of the agency itself, I think, and this is, this is something that happens when you're trying to sort of figure out what Trump is saying, uh, it requires a certain amount of interpretation. And I, I think his disparagement is, is really aimed at the more senior levels uh, of the agency who are close to the current president, people like John Brennan, uh, for example. But yet, when he says that, when he, when he says, oh, well, the agencies are the people that uh, gave you, uh, told you that there was a WMD in Iraq, and when he makes some of his other statements, it then gets sort of spread around and, uh, for, uh, for other reasons, and political reasons. And you know, it, it really doesn't serve anybody any good. Uh, and I've said this on many occasions recently, because I've been asked this question quite often about Donald Trump and the intelligence community. Um, basically, I come down to this. Uh, yeah, the CIA has made many mistakes in the past. I don't know of too many agent, uh, intelligence agencies worldwide who don't make mistakes. Um, it, can it do a better job? Absolutely, absolutely, and it needs to do a better job. But sometimes it, it really does. Sometimes it really does work, and when it does work, it's really incredible. And uh, if a wall of mistrust goes up between President-elect Trump and soon-to-be President Trump and his intelligence community, that is the worst of both worlds because that is something that our enemies will use to exploit and to widen and then to, then to fulfill their own plans in that, in that sort of widened gap. What other questions right there? When you were first uh, questioning him as to identify him at the very beginning, did he ever try to hide his identity? Um, you said he came up with this list of 30 questions. Did he ever try and throw any of those, or was he proud to be Saddam Hussein? And oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's, he never, uh, no, he never, he was who he was, and he was quite proud of that. And, you know, Saddam had, a, had an oversized opinion of himself, and he would never have, it wouldn't have been like a Heinrich Himmler, you know, who tried to say, oh, just, I'm nobody, you know. I'm just, uh, I'm just a, a private in the uh, German army, and you know, uh, when he was caught, uh, Saddam was uh, somebody, and he was, you know, he was always president of Iraq. Uh, so, you know, he um, he was really a, a fascinating figure, and one of the reasons why I also wrote this book is because when I afterwards I wanted to write, do an in-depth study that would be something that we could kind of keep in the agency and sort of hand, hand down to future analysts, that kind of thing, where this is sort of look, looked at a sort of a case study and said, this is the kind of person he was, and this is how he got power, and this is how he maintained power, and this is how he lost power. Because I think there were certain lessons to be learned from that. And uh, I, I went to several managers, and they kind of all were like, huh? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, and, and there was no, there was no interest whatsoever in, in doing something like that. And it was sort of um, uh, the attitude was sort of that's history, and we don't do history. And and that's why I, I kind of wanted to. That's why I think that I've ended up writing this book because I think that this is history, and uh, and it needs to be. It needs to be understood, but also it needs to be fleshed out. And, and not agenda-driven, it needs to be the truth, so. There's a question right over there, Lucy. Thanks. Well, this pertains to pretty much what you were just saying, but um, we all know that Saddam was a, a pretty brutal person. Yeah. 
But do you think Iraq was a better place then than it is considering what we were looking at today? Uh, that's another question that I get fr very frequently. And I have to say that um, I, I can't find anything about the overthrow of Saddam that says Iraq is in a better place today. Um, I look at Iraq, I look at the region, I look at what's happening, and I look at the, the ripple effects from it. Um, you know, Iraq is a, a Iraq is a basket case, and it will be for some time to come. Uh, you have uh, a, a government that is more corrupt than his, uh, more dysfunctional than his. You have two million displaced people in the country, uh, large swaths of territory owned by a, ter a, a really nasty terrorist group, ter terrorist organization population flows that have gone throughout the region and now threaten some of the stability of our closest European allies. Um, you have this spread into, into, uh, into Syria. Uh, this terrorist organization spread into Syria. Um, you have, I mean, I could go on. Uh, it, is, it is just such a bad situation. Um, Israel. Our, our, our very close ally in the region. Israel, is Israel better off because Saddam's gone? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, think, I think Israel feels probably more threatened now by Iran than they ever have. And uh, I think that uh, and, uh, you know, Iranian power in the region has also ha had a field day. Uh, and Iran has spread its influence throughout the region largely because Saddam is not there anymore. So that's the bad stuff. You know, the good stuff is um, you could make the argument about the Kurds, say, well, the Kurds have kind of achieved a certain independence. But, you know, something that was, they were already kind of semi-independent anyhow, number one. And number two, I don't think the, the, the Turks, the Syrians, or the Iranians would, would feel the same way about uh, uh, Kurdish independence. And they, they feel probably threatened by that as well. So again, I think most of it is just negative, if that answers your question. And we have time for one more, and we right there. Um, so something that's always kind of been interesting to me is that when we talk about world leaders, most of the time we refer to them in, in their last names. And Saddam, we talk about him as Saddam. And I'm, so I'm wondering how he became mononymous, if that's, I don't know if that's politically significant, but. I'm sorry, you, you're, you're wondering what? How he became, how, why, did, why did we you know, call him by his first name? I don't know how that happened or if it's significant. Oh, well, I mean, that's just Arab culture. Uh, you know, um, uh, Saddam, is the, Saddam is the son of Hussein, and the second name is the father's name. And so it's Saddam Hussein. I mean, you call Putin, Putin. You call Stalin, Lenin, Hitler, even, yeah, Gaddafi. It does, that's an interesting question because it does kind of have this, forget Arab culture, we, Saddam, or Saddam, as George H.W. Bush called him. Um, it just, it, you know, the, um, one of the things about Saddam Hussein and his rule was that he, he used to be Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti. And the Tikriti was because he was from Tikrit, or the area near Tikrit. And then in the 80s, when the Iran war was going badly, all of a sudden he wanted to get rid of these tribal 
tribal designations because there were too, too many Tikritis in, in sensitive positions of government, and some of the other tribes were getting anxious and jealous and feeling that they weren't doing a good job. And so he said, okay, no more tribal distinctions. So that's when he just became Saddam Hussein. And then, then back in the 90s, after the first Gulf War, then all of a sudden the tribal parts started to come back. And I think it was just easier for people to, especially in the West, to just sort of realize that, you know, he's just Saddam, Saddam Hussein. And How did you refer to him when you talked to him? I'm sorry? How did you refer to him when you talked to him? You know, um, I, felt, I felt great. Um, I felt like uh, he... I felt like I knew him. Um, and one of the things, again, getting back to how the CIA viewed him, I mean, we understood sort of this, the large arc of his career. And so I felt very comfortable with him. And I was able to talk to him. And he recognized, at least with me, that I knew a lot about him. Did you call him President Hussein? Did you call him No, Saddam? no. We, well, him? we wanted to make sure, you know, part of, part of uh, the, my, the, the, the one-time head of my group that was doing this wanted to use enhanced interrogation techniques on, on Saddam. And fortunately, that, was, that headquarters said absolutely not. Um, and, uh, and then he was removed and somebody else was put in, uh, in his place. Um, but one of the things that we wanted to do was to break him of this feeling that he was something special, that he was important, that he was still president. So we just called him Saddam, and that was it. Well, join me in thanking John Nixon for taking the time to talk to us here today. Thank you. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for the continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL Spycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>